and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And as I had stated a couple weeks back, I wanted to reserve releasing episodes with cinema when I felt that there was something to really talk about instead of just trying to fill the air every week, which again is exactly why I created the whole concept of cinema uh, with the belief that basically people set out that have the means to do something great and make a conscious effort not to. So I never want my podcast to devolve into just filling up with crappy episodes each week till I stumble upon a really good topic. But as of late, some really good topics have come up. And if you remember, uh, I did the one on Barry Diller and his proclamation or calling the time of death of Hollywood, saying that basically Hollywood is over and filmmaking is over. And that kind of spilled right into last week's episode uh, with Independence Day resurgence. And then something interesting came up yesterday. Uh, Usually I find a lot of inspiration on Twitter. And it's great because people love to have back and forth reactions. And predominantly, uh, most of my my focus on cinema has really uh, been leveled at the horror genre. And because that's really where I hail from, and, and I feel that's, that's my most comfortable uh, territory. However, someone tweeted yesterday, and, and they were very, very upset, uh, over the uh, announcement that Blumhouse is going to be starting a new Exorcist trilogy that will be direct sequels to the original 1973 film. Now, again, I, I want to state that I have no idea where this is going to go in the way of fitting in Exorcist 2 or Exorcist 3 or even the uh, prequels, those two failed prequels, and will it even dovetail uh, with the uh, very limited Fox TV series of The Exorcist, which I thought was an interesting idea, but I don't really think we needed one. And that's where we're kind of go, going with today. Uh, the the anger that that was coming out for this new Exorcist trilogy uh, was was not just the idea that there's going to be a new Exorcist film, but why can't they leave things alone and leave things as they are? And, and a couple people came forward in, in which I pretty much agreed with that the ultimate Exorcist sequel was made already, and that was Exorcist 3, which was really Legion. And um, although that they released a theatrical cut on DVD as well as a restored director's cut, which used a lot of uh, footage that either wasn't finished or processed or test footage. Uh, I'm going to say I preferred the theatrical cut, believe it or not. Uh, I would love to have seen what a polished uh, director's cut would have looked like because I read the book Legion and the book Legion is is very different in many ways than William Peter Blatty's uh, screenplay. And from what I understand, uh, the studio, Morgan Creek and such, uh, they, they really got involved in messing with Exorcist 3, and and Blatty just did the best that he could. But I do like uh, The Exorcist 3. I think in tone and feel and performances, it's, it's a pretty solid sequel, and it got a bum rap at the box office, mostly for being titled Exorcist 3, and people linking it to the really shitty Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which I will be amazed if the Blumhouse movies acknowledge uh, the events of Exorcist 2. I I really hope they do not. I hope Blumhouse does what it did with the 2018 Halloween and just ignore the events of of the second installment, which 
I thought was a brilliant move. And you can hear all about my thoughts on Halloween 2, uh, 1981, in my previous podcast, one of them especially called Halloween Then, When, and Now, or something like that, uh, where it's heading. And also my discussion on Halloween 2 in We Need to Talk About Michael, which was a look at the 2018 film release and why they chose to ignore those events. But another uh, phrase that came up in this Twitter discussion was cash grab. This is another cash grab. And people get upset with that. Now, today commemorates the official release of the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer. And it was very clear what they were trying to do in this trailer. Not only is the tone of Ghostbusters Afterlife very different than Ghostbusters 1 and 2, but the filmmakers in the studio really, really want you to know that this will be nothing like that terrible 2016 uh, Melissa McCarthy vehicle. Uh, they, they are definitely putting distance between Ghostbusters, the recognized franchise, and that disaster abomination of a film. You can also hear all about that, my thoughts on that, with my uh, episode on remakes, reimaginings, and repackagings. Uh, very, very important to, to take a listen to that one and my thoughts on the 2016 Ghostbusters and why we have ended up with a film like Afterlife as well. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the trailer for Afterlife, before I get back into The Exorcist, is the trailer actually made me pretty maudlin and, and sad. And I think because it's more than just nostalgia, but it is a reminder that, that things move on. And it's very clear that they're, they're tipping their hat uh, to Harold Ramis and his uh, Egon character because he's, he's not here with us anymore. And that's a shame that this film will not be a reunification of, of the original four Ghostbusters. But also at the end of the preview, I believe that's Dan Aykroyd that answers the phone. And they make it very clear that this is a direct sequel. This is the Ghostbusters 3 we've been waiting for. But I'm getting off track here. Let's let's go back to cash grabs for a moment in the ire of Blumhouse. Now, I did mention in uh, my episode, uh, We Need to Talk About Michael, that Blumhouse has kind of stepped up and become the Disney of horror. And what I mean by that is they're becoming a machine. They've been a machine for some time. And Jason Blum you know, came to Hollywood years ago with the theory that, or the belief, I should say, that you don't really need to make a horror movie for $20 million. What you need to do is just get something good, package it together, shoot it for as cheap as possible, and horror makes money. And he wasn't wrong. And he's proved this time and time again. Yes, Blumhouse has had a few misfires here and there. There's no doubt. Nobody's perfect. Harrison Ford has had a share of bad films. Spielberg has had a bomb or two as well. So we're, we're not getting into perfection because the internet seems to breed that as well too, that, that nobody can fail. And if you do, we're really going to celebrate that failure. Blumhouse revolutionized the way horror was made, for better or for worse, whether you like their stuff or not. Personally, I've, I've found plenty of Blum product to be terrific. And, uh, you know, they've, they've given way and rise to a lot of talent, James Wan included on that. So it's, it's not all bad. And when you talk about cash grabs for a moment here, uh, look, as long as movies have been around, there have been sequels, there have been knockoffs, and there have been cash grabs. 
It's that simple. And I said to this guy who who wrote this, and he had a point, and he was really trying to incite a really good, you know, uh, critical thinking discussion. It wasn't just like he was bitching. And I really enjoyed talking to folks like this. And he came back with, but, you know, again, like, why can't they just leave things alone? And why are they just doing this aside from money? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, because the answer is not black and white, and it's not a single answer. And it's not simple at all. And fans, horror fans, and the horror community bear a chunk of the responsibility for this. But we'll get into it. And I've touched on these things in previous episodes as well. But I thought this might make a really good focused episode. So as for cash grabs or knockoffs, look, you can go all the way back to how the Frankenstein and Universal monster movies devolved basically into cash grabs, you know, with the teaming up of... You know, Frankenstein versus This One Meets and House of This, uh, which was just really a studio trying to figure out a way to wring out the last couple bucks of their franchises as they started to fade. And, and I've done episodes on this talking about this very thing. But as for uh, cash grabs, look at 1933's King Kong. I mean, King Kong was a monster box office hit. It is known as the ape who saved Hollywood and definitely saved RKO Pictures. But they quickly threw a sequel into commission. And I think it was less than a year after King Kong's release. Well, they threw out Son of Kong. And I remembered even as a boy watching it going, well, this is really disappointing. I mean, we have this little albino ape and he's friendly to people and he fights a couple dinosaurs on the island to, to save the humans and sacrifices himself at the end when Skull Island, you know, invariably has to sink at the end in some wild climax. But I remembered even thinking as a boy that this was nowhere near as good as King Kong. And it wasn't. But then when Godzilla came along, you know, uh, what was that? Uh, 20, 21 years later, Godzilla came along and Godzilla was a huge hit and so much of a hit that they made a, a 1955 Americanized version where, as you know, Raymond Burr was in and they called it King of the Monsters and uh, it was a big hit over here, especially in the drive-in circuit. Well, they made a knockoff pretty damn fast and Godzilla raids again, as it was called, uh, I believe, I don't know what the Japanese name for it was. Maybe it is the same thing. However, that was made in less than a year and had Angiris in it, I guess. And, you know, but it just didn't sport the same impact or power that the original Gojira in 1954 gave us. But it was a knockoff. It was simply made to make more money. It was a cash grab. And we go through all of film history with this. I mean, look at Hammer films. As beloved as many Hammer films are, they're all cash grabs. They're all knocking off of, of previous established um, material. And they're there to, to milk things out. I mean, really, you know, how, how do you make a movie called The Raven based on the Edgar Allan Poe poem? And, and you get what you did with Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre and the gang. I mean, I guess. But those are cash grabs. They were made fast to make money. And people don't realize that. And then I referenced definitely since this person was going on about Blum and didn't care for the 2018 Halloween, and asked me what I thought. And again, you can listen to my episode. But I felt the first 20 minutes of the 2018 Halloween were really good. That asylum scene where the podcast journalists, the online journalists, go to bring Michael his mask back, 
I thought was spectacular. Uh, the, the set design, the cinematography, the acting, the way that it was shot, I thought it was perfect. I really did. The movie, of course, devolves down into a paint-by-numbers slasher to give audiences exactly what they wanted. And, and that's fine. And that's where I'm going to be going with this today. But for me, uh, I felt, and I'm going back to this now, 1981's uh, Halloween 2 was a major cash grab. That movie was made for the sole purpose to simply cash in on the success of the first motion picture of the original Halloween. It did not really further the story. It did not give us anything really new. And it certainly didn't change the venue or change things up, such as the way that The Empire Strikes Back changed the tone of of the Star Wars films by keeping on a somewhat familiar path, but also not having to be afraid to give us something different. And Halloween 2018 was just really much more of the same. And you can listen to my episode, uh, We Need to Talk About Michael, to hear my thoughts on where I thought this could have gone that could have really changed things up. So now we get to the second part of this. As horror fans listening to me right now, do you really want things changed up? I mean, a lot of you bitch and moan about it and you bemoan these remakes and you bemoan these repackagings or reimaginings, whatever they call them, reboots, but you're still paying to see them and you're still enjoying them and you're still buying them and you're giving them plenty of, of notice and coverage when either you praise or beat them up online. Do we really want something different? Look, I went through this with my own film, Death House. Everybody thought Death House was going to be a big team-up, a big monster mash, and it was going to be Freddy fights Jason, fights Candyman, fights uh, Pinhead, and they all thought that the actors that they loved were going to put on that makeup one more time and battle each other. And no matter how many fucking times I said it in interviews... People didn't believe me. In fact, I I put this in a podcast only an hour before the sneak preview of Death House at Scaricon, I believe, in New York. uh, There was a guy that tweeted and said about ready to go see Harrison Smith's Death House. He said that it is in a monster mashup, but I think he's just been teasing us and we're going to get what we want. And I tweeted back to this guy. If you come into this movie expecting to see Jason and Freddy and Pinhead and Candyman and Leatherface, you are going to hate this movie. And guess what? He fucking hated the movie. He told the dorkening when he left, who were setting up interviews outside, that he hated it. Well, can't say I didn't warn you. And no matter how many times I said it, people wanted it. Now, we're not even taking in the legalities of all of this. I mean, it costs a lot of money to license these characters. And look what's going on right now at the moment with Friday the 13th and the licensing and the copyright issues and all of that. A lawsuit that's that's going on for what seems like forever. And uh, you, you just, you can't do it. I mean, you can, it's just going to cost a lot of money or you end up with what you got with Freddy versus Jason. And as bad as Freddy versus Jason was, and I'm here to tell you, it was bad. Okay, and that was a cash grab, a definite cash grab. And it wasn't even done by Blum, but it was a cash grab that got your money and it didn't care if it had to be good. All it knew was that it had to pair up Freddie and Jason. 
And believe it or not, it took over 12 scripts to finally give us what you got and what a mess it was. And I don't care what you say. For those of you out there right now, look, there was a guy that blocked me on Twitter because I do not care for Halloween 2, 1981. And this so rocked his world, he blocked me. Folks, this is part of the problem. The problem is you have to let go of certain things. And the internet has created this nostalgia factor that we just can't let go of things. And for many Time has pitched camp around like 1988, and it stayed that way. Things are not the way that they used to be. And I know this sounds very pandering and condescending, but this kind of attitude is not allowing horror to move on in certain aspects. So the reason why Blum is doing what they're doing is they know there's still ore in these mines, and they are mining it, and they will continue to mine it, until the material is gone, until the resource is completely depleted. And when will that happen? Likely that will happen when Generation X and even most of the older millennial generation is finally gone. And there's nobody here to pad these conventions with lots of money and drop $500 or $300 to see your favorite horror icon put on their their makeup one more time. That's what's really going to bring an end to it and start bringing freshness to the horror genre. And look, I'm not saying that there isn't freshness going on out there. There's a lot of inventive and really great stuff. But right now, we have a very, very vocal group that will shit talk, dunk on whatever phrases you want to use that will try to even suppress this kind of material because they do want another Hellraiser movie. They do want another Candyman where Tony Todd is Candyman again. They want all of this. And a lot of them, as much as they pay lip service to wanting horror to move on and give us something fresh and new, they don't embrace it. So you're getting three new Exorcist movies. It looks like Ellen Burstyn will be part of it. And and she's pretty old at this point. Um, What are you going to do? I guess that's what it is. Look, I was approached by a company to write a new Exorcist movie and that it had to be a sequel or a prequel to the original Exorcist. And I did something pretty creative and inventive, almost like a J.J. Abrams kind of Star Trek move. And the script, I'm going to just say it for myself, is not only really good, but it was covered and reviewed well by independent coverage. And yet, by this point in time, this company either didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know what was happening behind the scenes, but Blum had already started down the road on their new Exorcist trilogy. And they have no interest in mine whatsoever. They've got their stuff. And that's fine. That's the way the business works. And they know better to try to make a remake. They know better than to try to reboot it. They are making three, at least this is what the news is coming to us. They are making us three direct sequels. And they are not doing it because they have a lot of money to throw away. Jason Blum does not toss money and he doesn't spend it capriciously. Yes, you can say, well, he spent it on this and that bomb. Look, again, everybody's entitled to a few missteps. But Jason Blum has a very, very strict formula. 
and he knows what he's doing. And they know there are people out there that are going to come see these movies and they're going to make them financially worthwhile. So what's the answer here then? It's neither good nor bad. My point is though, is that you have so many people and they are wonderful people. Don't get me wrong, but they just want the same thing. They want it over and over again, even if they have the luxury to bitch about it. And I've said this many times, what more is there to do with Michael Myers? Aside from him walking around in the Shatner mask and hearing the original Carpenter score and sinking his knife into yet another bunch of victims or bringing back Jamie Lee as long as she's willing to come back. Will she die in Halloween Kills? We don't know. Will she die in the third one? We don't know. We'll keep you going on that. But really, what more is there to do? And I've said this in my We Need to Talk About Michael episode. I mean, you do know there were plans at one point, and I don't know how serious they were, but there were plans to send Michael Myers into space. And, you know, I see why they put Jason into space. What more can you do with him? Look, it's not like Michael is some eloquent kind of actor here where we can really build up an incredible backstory and there's there are dramatic moments where he can communicate and interact with Jamie Lee Curtis. He is a walking monolith. That's what he is. He is a Terminator, not much different than Schwarzenegger's. And he walks through, he stabs people, he kills people, he gets shot, he resurrects, and he keeps coming. He walked out of a burning house at the end of 2018, even though Jamie Lee had basically almost 40 years to prepare for him, somehow Michael found a way out. She didn't plan at all. You know, and that's no different than saying, well, you know, upstairs, why didn't she take the doors off closets? Why were there any doors, period, where somebody could hide? Again, we accept it because it's familiar and it's that same meal that old couples go into the diner and get. They may not particularly love the meal, but they know what they're going to get. And that's the taste that their tongues and their palates have become accustomed to. So for this person yesterday asking me my opinion on whether Blum is making good stuff or my thoughts on Halloween 2018 or a Friday the 13th remake or you know any, any of these things, my response is, as you can see, It's really not a simple answer. And part of this comes back to you, the listener, the horror viewers, the horror consumers right now. What do you really want? If you really want the same old, well then stop complaining that you want something new because then when they do give you something new, you bitch about it. You hate it. You complain and you say, well, it's not like this. It's not like that. It doesn't, it, it seems like this, but really what I wanted was more of like Nightmare on Elm Street. I wanted more of, of like the original Hellraiser. I don't know what to tell you. You can't have it all. Studios will go in the direction of where they feel the money will flow. So Blum, they do their homework. They target their audiences. They get out there. They put their feelers out and they see. There's no way that Jason Blum and Ryan Turek over at Blumhouse are going to willy-nilly just throw out three Exorcist sequels 
and just cross their fingers and hope they make money. This has been calculated. It has been planned. It has been studied. And data has been amassed. And data has been analyzed. Look, of all the places to create a horror sequel, The Exorcist is one of the most dubious. And there's a lot of risk in making a sequel to The Exorcist because really, aside from the original film, all could be declared box office failures. So let's just take a look real quick at that. The Exorcist II, The Heretic, was a complete fucking mess. So much of a mess that they had to pull the film out of theaters, I think almost two, three times to re-edit it. And in one case, put this weird kind of prologue narrative on the front to help us explain uh, what's going on, just like they did with Jaws the Revenge. You know a movie's in trouble when they have to re-edit it and put on some stupid narrator on the front to fill you in because basically you can't figure it out. The Exorcist II was directed by John Borman. And although Freakin and uh, Blatty were approached to do a sequel, both said no. But Warner Brothers was going to make a sequel anyway. And that was no different than Halloween 2. Halloween was getting a sequel. No matter who made it, they're making it. The same with Jaws. Jaws was getting a sequel. It didn't matter if Spielberg was coming back or not. By God, they're making it. And that was also the same with Psycho 2. And when Perkins balked at returning as Norman Bates, the studio said, fine, we're really looking at Christopher Walken if you don't return. And what do you know? Perkins realized they're going to make it with or without me. Better they make it with me. And even Scheider felt that way, although there were other circumstances there that sweetened the deal for him, especially dropping a pending lawsuit against him. And for those of you who are Jaws fans, you know all about that. But for The Exorcist, The Exorcist 2 was a complete misfire. First of all, The Exorcist is a standalone film. It did not require a sequel whatsoever. It did not require a prequel. It is its own movie, in its own world, in its own cinematic universe. It needed nothing. But the studio was going to plow forward because there's money in the devil. And that's exactly what they did. And they really thought they had a winner. Look, you can go read on this. The the execs, the honchos at Warner Brothers really thought they had a superior film to The Exorcist. And they were waiting for the money to just roll in until Blatty himself was sitting in a Philadelphia theater watching the film and the audience was so pissed off, they threw their seats through the screen. And then Warner Brothers went into panic mode as there were reactions like this all across the country. And what did we get? We got some kind of new age, kind of technology meets the devil kind of therapy thing with Louise Fletcher. And is uh, Reagan McNeil really cured of her possession? And Or is the demon still, is Pazuzu still residing in her deep subconscious. We've got that. Then we've got, you know, a Vatican inquiry into the death of Father Marin, and they want to maybe keep this whole thing quiet. And they bring in, of all people, Richard Burton. And Burton comes in as Father Lamont, of all names. I mean, at the time when uh, Sanford and Son was coming along, we have Lamont. And what a mess. All I know is that there's an African warlord in it, played by James Earl Jones, and lots and lots of locusts grasshoppers, everywhere. Kitty Wynn returns, 
uh, as as the housekeeper nanny slash, you know, her girl Friday kind of thing who inexplicably sets herself on fire. The movie is just a mess and it goes on way too long and we don't know really what it is. And, and I got to tell you, I've seen the movie now several times in different edits, different forms from theatrical to studio to was there a I don't even know. I, I just don't even know how the movie ends. I can't even remember. It's such a mess. And it was really for a while the gold standard of what not to do in making a sequel. So think about that. Blum is has got this already to deal with. Do they acknowledge Exorcist 2 as canon? If they do, they're already fighting a major bomb and they're putting good money up for it. So what the hell do you do? Then comes along Exorcist 3 and that had to be, my God, 20 some years later. And Exorcist 3, uh, William Peter Blatty begged the studio, don't make it Exorcist 3. The audience will equate it with Exorcist 2 and what a dog Exorcist 2 was. The studio didn't listen. In addition to that, Blatty, who wrote a terrific novel called Legion, which is the official sequel to The Exorcist, uh, it shouldn't be an Exorcist 3, it should be an Exorcist 2. And it is a terrific book. Uh, that goes far deeper into Pazuzu and the possession and most of all, a whole new storyline that that does incorporate Father Karras. And those elements, some of those elements made it to the screen. But the studio started messing with Blatty and his vision, afraid that he was making too talky of a horror film and that it would be boring and all those things. And um, they called it Exorcist 3. They didn't even call it Exorcist 3 Legion. They just called it The Exorcist 3. And sure enough, the movie did, I think, open somewhat strong. Look, the audience I saw it with on opening night in a movie theater uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, it was packed. But then it had a very quick drop off and it disappeared. And why? Well, because the studio actually, people uh, from the studio called Blatty and said, I think it was because, you know, people are associating it with Exorcist 2. And Blatty kind of threw his hands up like, what the fuck did I just tell you people before? Yeah, no shit. But the damage was done. So then there's nothing for a while in the Exorcist realm. So now if you're Jason Blum, you're looking at the Exorcist and you're going, huh, big box office Academy Award nominated horror film, perhaps considered the greatest horror movie of all time with two really high-profile bomb sequels. Now, The Exorcist 3 has been rehabilitated over time. The Exorcist 2 is not. But Exorcist Part 3 has been rehabilitated through home video and cable and, and eventually streaming screenings where people go, wow, this is kind of interesting. I do own both the director cut and or the restored cut, I should say, and also the theatrical cut. And as I said at the start of this episode, I really kind of prefer the theatrical cut, even though it's a bit more of a mess. But it's hard to judge the restored cut because it's not really a full cut. Uh, it's it's a it's a patiche of of, of a lot of things uh, put together to make a coherent film, and so it suffers from that. So then, what do you have? Well, then they go into the prequel route, and um, they come up with you know Exorcist: The Beginning, and then Exorcist: The Dominion. Uh, Dominion, and both of them follow the adventures of Father Marin, uh, how he came across Pazuzu, and both films are extremely different. One was by um, 
uh, Paul Schrader, and the other one was by Rennie Harlan. Both prequels were box office failures. So why make three new sequel films to really a franchise that really only has one successful, critically acclaimed piece to it, and that's the original. But then we go further. Uh, About a year and a half, two years ago, Fox decides they're going to make an Exorcist series. And again, I don't know who was thinking, why is this a good idea? It probably isn't, but it comes down to this. They know people are going to watch, and people did for a little bit. The series really didn't get all that far. I think it made it to two seasons. And then, of course, it has the twist where, as for anybody who's watched it knows, uh, this was not a whole new retelling of the Exorcist story, but rather a continuation where Gina Davis is the Linda Blair character all grown up. I don't know why that was such a good idea and who thought that it would really be successful, but they went ahead and did it. And here's why. And this is why, for those of you who have already tweeted to me, I'm not going to see this, but wait, maybe I will. I want you to tell me why I'm going to see it. And the reason is, and it's not maybe specifically you, but for all those who go to conventions and drop the same 50 to $75 per photograph on the same people over and over again to collect as many of them as you can, Because it's your favorite horror icon and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. If that's what you like to do, it's your money and you can spend it as you want. However, it's perpetuating this nostalgia feel. But it's not really furthering the narrative. We are kind of stuck. We're stuck in the 80s. Arguably a little with the 70s because of uh, Texas Chainsaw and Leatherface. But we are stuck in the 80s. And I've done a piece on this as well, an episode on this that... What happens when all of these folks are gone, when the Bill Mosleys and Barbara Cramptons and Kane Hodders and uh, Tony Todd's, when they're finally all gone, who is there to replace them? And we're kind of shooting ourselves in our foot on this because we are so hell-bent on preserving what we like. And the internet is very, very good at this. It's good at nostalgia. It's good for time-capsuling. And being able to kind of go back, hit a website and enter a world that once existed a long time ago and never does. And that's why you see a resurgence in nostalgia-based type of shows. I mean, The Last Drive-In is a perfect example of. And again, I'm not dunking or criticizing on any of this. But what I am saying is for those who complain that, my God, it's a cash grab to make three more Exorcist films. The answer is, yeah, it is. But that's the whole point. It's to make money. And they know most of you are going to go see it. So what is the answer? Again, it's not simplified. It's not a very cut and dry answer. To say, well, then just simply don't go see them. Well, that's one thing. But a lot of people go, then where am I getting my entertainment? Because the new stuff sucks. Well, if the new stuff, let's just say for argument's sake, the new stuff really sucks. Then what do we do about it? That's the whole pretext of this ep- of this episode, of this podcast. And that is we need to demand better. Then ask for better icons. Ask for better horror films. Look, I need you to really go back and look at things with an honest eye at all these franchises. It's not like when they were making them in the moment, during the, the decades that they were made, 
that these were really classics. Again, fans forget a lot and they forgive a lot. And, and before I go to horror, we'll go to Ghostbusters because of what I mentioned with the drop of the recent trailer today. And that is there is nostalgia there, but there's also a feeling of like ending that it's never going to be the same again. And this Ghostbusters film has a very different tone than Ghostbusters 1 or even Ghostbusters 2. And that's my point. Let's look really at Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2, the only thing it has going for it is that it returned the original cast for the most part. Overall, is it a good film? Absolutely not. And even Bill Murray has disavowed the film and has cited the film as the reason why there never was a Ghostbusters 3. And I've talked about this before, especially in talking about the 2016 film. But people forget just how lousy Ghostbusters 2 was. And I know there are some of you right now going, no, it was awesome, blow, you're wrong, Harrison, da-da, fuck you, Harrison. No, the answer is it really wasn't all that good. Ivan Reitman knew it, Bill Murray knew it, pretty much the whole returning cast knew it. And Murray chalks it up to the idea that when they got together one time, they, they kind of all pitched the idea and it sounded good. It was one of those things that sounded good. But then when it went into practice, it really wasn't kind of like what they talked about. And the magic just wasn't there. 1989 was a very different year than 1984. And you have to look at things in context, in their historical context. The same goes for, let's say, Friday the 13th. The original Friday the 13th started out as a ripoff of Halloween. It was a deliberate ripoff. It was designed to make money. And it was about boobs and blood. That's what it was all about. Nobody expected it to become a franchise. But it did. And most people will tell you that aside from arguably Friday the 13th 2 and 4, which was the final chapter, the rest are all middling in their reception, and they've only become a thing as time has passed. In the time that they were released, a lot of them barely scratched the box office records. They barely moved the needles. Most fans were like, eh, I don't know. Jason X, for those of you who are now fans of it, it's kind of like Halloween 3. When Halloween 3 came out, it was reviled. Now it's been rehabbed. Well, Jason X has been rehabbed. Even Jason Goes to Manhattan, Jason Takes Manhattan, has been rehabbed. And that's because of the nostalgia factor. And that nostalgia factor translates into there's still some mineral left in these mines and there is still some ore. And The Exorcist is the same way. Despite one terrible immediate sequel, Exorcist Part Two, and then a misunderstood third, and then two terrible prequels and a very indifferently received uh, TV series that really was a misfire. They're still going forward and they're going to make the three new sequels. And the reason why is they know you're going to come as much as you hate it. And they also know there's an industry that is growing out there and this is dangerous, but there is an industry growing out there, whether it's producing money, but it is producing attention. It is producing marketing, and that is there is a whole hate culture out there. And as much as a movie is hated upon, it sometimes just really makes people want to see it. And I've talk, talked about this before, even back when I was a kid in Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, I came to the theater, I was working at the mall, and all these people came out and protested it and decried its, its you know depravity and da-da-da-da-da. Same with Sleepaway Camp, same thing. And all it did was make people want to see it. And that's what a lot of these people don't realize. Look, Howard the Duck 
which was reviled when it was released in, in 1985, 86, has been somewhat rehabbed. And that is because a lot of people go, I've heard how awful this is. I just have to see it. So I ask you, then what is the difference? Whether somebody sees it and loves it or somebody sees it and hates it or goes in expecting to hate it and hates it anyway and then writes about it and promotes it. That's why most people will go see it. There is this burgeoning industry of hate. In my recent film, Where the Scary Things Are, uh, one of the kids says, it's the internet. Everybody shits on everything. And that's exactly why these films get marketing and they get viewed and they get the, the press out there to know. Look, Blumhouse, I'm sure, expected people to go, oh my God, another Exorcist movie. Three of them, Jesus Christ, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. You're fucking talking about it, aren't you? We're talking about it right here. So there is still ore to be you know, extracted from these mines. And that's why this is going. What is the answer? I don't know. I have no solid answer other than for all you indie filmmakers out there, you future carpenters, you future Romeros, whatever it's going to be, keep pushing the boundaries and trying to do different new things. Give us a new icon for 40 years from now. Because the Jasons and the Freddies, I mean, I guess they'll still be around kind of like Dracula and the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman and the mummy and the creature. They're, they're all still around too, I guess. And even though they tried to do another spin on them with the Dark Universe, and I did a whole episode on that, uh, that went nowhere. So we want certain things and we don't want certain things. But the problem is, we still support them no matter what. So the nostalgia factor, the fear of stepping up for something new and truly embracing something new, this is all a part of it. And this is why Blumhouse will go back to the mine and they will extract three more Exorcist films because they feel it's worth the risk. The speculation is far too great. And they know it. And that's why they know most of you will buy it. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to talking to you again really soon. Would love to hear from you about this. Thank you. <laughs>